Well, it's already begun. It's only four days into 2004, but it's already taking place. And you know what I'm talking about. People have already begun breaking their New Year's resolutions. If any of you have made New Year's resolutions before, you know what I mean. There, there will be a time where you set out a certain amount of goals that you have, but it seems, at least for me, those first couple of weeks are tough. And some of those just get forgotten, and we conveniently uh, forget to pick them up for the rest of the year. Uh, maybe we forget them the first couple of days, and we just put them aside. Uh, we like to set goals for ourselves, and that's good. But we also like to predict what we're going to do for the next year. Have you noticed that? That's what New Year's resolutions are. It's our way of predicting the future, predicting what's going to happen, what we're going to do. In fact, if you watched any television this afternoon, you probably flipped through a few different predictions. You might have seen a political talk show or a news program where everyone is trying to predict what is going to happen overseas to predict what will happen in the Middle East or what will happen in the trial of Saddam Hussein or even who will win the next presidential election. And there are people there making predictions, trying to say what's going to happen in the future. You may have even flipped past a football game or a basketball game, and there are men and women making predictions over who's going to win what games and who's going to do well and what players are going to excel, and they're trying to tell what's going to happen in the future. If you have the Weather Channel, you see for 24 hours people predicting what is going to happen outside, whether it's going to rain, snow, we want to be able to tell the future. And it's a desire that humans have, and historically, we haven't been very good at it. I thought I'd take a few minutes this evening just to read some predictions that uh, we have made over the years as humans. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, so we can look back on some of these and laugh. But I thought you might appreciate some of these statements uh, that were made. There was a statement made years ago as an MGM executive first viewed The Wizard of Oz, and he wrote down his only note about this movie was, uh, that song about the rainbow was no good. It needed to be taken out. Uh, there was a man named uh, Lord Kelvin who was the president of the Royal Society, and he stated in 1897 these three things. He said, first of all, radio has no future. Second of all, x-rays are clearly a hoax. And third of all, the aeroplane is scientifically impossible. A concert manager in 1954 made this statement. He said, you ought to go back to driving a truck. Of course, he made that statement to the singer he had just fired, uh, Elvis Presley. Another statement made by a movie executive, after having an opportunity to invest in a specific motion picture, he said, look, forget it. I don't know if you understand this, but no Civil War picture has ever made a nickel. The movie, of course, was Gone with the Wind. Rex Lambert, the editor of Radio Times, made this statement. He said, television won't matter in my lifetime or in yours. He said that in 1936, and things have changed since then. Admiral William Lea, he said in 1945, he made sort of a haunting prediction. He said, the atom bomb will never go off, and I speak as an expert in explosives. But my favorite is probably this one. The director of the U.S. Patent Office in 1899 made this statement. Everything that can be invented has already been invented. When we look back over we can see the future. And to
9. Page 917 in the Pew Bibles. That will be our text. We'll get there in just a second. We've had a great opportunity this morning to hear just a, a tremendous lesson motivating us to follow the Lord, motivating us to march And the Lord's banner will necessarily be following in the footsteps of Christ. Uh, Peter would put it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 21, he writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. As we march under the banner of the Lord through 2004, we will be following in the steps of Christ. Christ living a perfect life, a sinless example for us, is what we are supposed to model ourselves after and what we should desire to attain. You may be familiar with the author Nathaniel Hawthorne. He's probably most famous for the book he wrote entitled The Scarlet Letter. But he also wrote another short story called The Great Stone Face. And I don't know if you had to read this going through high school. I know that I did. And it's a story that, that begins with a young boy named Ernest. And Ernest lives in a village that's right by a rock formation. It's a massive formation of rock. And if you view that rock formation from just the right angle in just the right lighting, it looks like the face of a human being. In fact, there are many legends that have sprung up over the years in this town about this face. They call it the Great Stone Face. And the people of this town believe that someday someone will come along who looks exactly like the Great Stone Face. And so Ernest is excited by this and he begins looking. The first character that arrives on the scene is a very rich man. He grew up in the town and then went out and made a fortune. And so he comes back and everyone says, this is going to be the one. He's going to look exactly like the great stone face. And so Ernest, as a young boy, looks at him and he sees the greed. And he decides that that's not the kind of person that would resemble the great stone face. And so years later, Ernest grows into a young man and another individual arrives on the scene that's supposed to resemble the great stone face, and this is a war hero. And he marches through town, and he's very popular, and he's decorated for all the battles he's been involved in. But as Ernest looks at him and, and sees that fame and sees what it's done to this man, he says, no, that's not the man that's going to resemble the great stone face. So years go by, and Ernest grows into an old man. And then he sees a politician come through town. And the politician is making speeches and shaking people's hands. And people say, surely this is the one who's going to look like the great stone face. But Ernest looks at him and says, no, he's not the one either. And as the years pass, every day when Ernest gets up, he looks at the face in the mountain. And every night before he goes to bed, he sees it. It's before him constantly. It's visible from every point in the town. And so he lives his entire life looking at this face. And finally, we see a poet who arrives on the scene. Ernest had hoped he would be the one who resembles the great stone face, he wasn't either. And as Ernest is talking to members of the town, there's a moment at the end of the story where everyone all of a sudden looks at Ernest and realizes that his face is the one that looks exactly like the great stone face. It's an interesting short fictional story, but I like the image that it displays because I think it tells us a little bit about what our mission is as Christians. As we look at the example Jesus left for us, as we march under the banner of the Lord by following in His steps, we're going to have His image before us every day. Every morning that we wake up, 
We'll be modeling ourselves after the example of Christ every night before we go to bed. And if we have that image in our mind, surely, at some point, sooner or later, we're going to start resembling the one we're modeling ourselves after. In fact, sooner or later, we may even reflect the glory of Christ to those around us. After all, we're called to be Christ's ambassadors. We're called to be Christ's body in the New Testament. And by constantly focusing on Jesus' example and modeling ourselves after him, we can fulfill that command. But modeling ourselves after Jesus is not without cost. And so as we look in Luke chapter 9, I want us to see the words Jesus gives us, and he lets us know what we can expect if we're going to march under his banner. Let's read beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, meaning Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never sugarcoats uh, the reality of following him? He never waters it down for those potential followers. He tells them very frankly and honestly what is going to take to be his disciple. He does the same thing here, and it sort of flies in the face of human wisdom. If you would put a finger here in Luke and, and turn over to John chapter 6, I'd like for us to look at an example of this in the Gospel of John. We see a chapter that begins with probably Jesus' most uh, famous or one of the most talked about miracles he performed when he took the loaves and the fishes of the small boy and he fed a multitude of people. And so after the the feeding of the 5,000, there are those there who have seen Jesus heal other people. And they've seen that he can produce food out of uh, a lunch that was barely fit for a few people and he can feed over 5,000 people. And they've seen that he can do this and we read in John chapter 6, and verse 14, that once they saw the signs which he performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And then look at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now think about that for just a second. And let's look at this through the lens of human wisdom. If we were looking at this from a purely human perspective, and we wanted to start out and build a religious movement, First of all, we probably wouldn't have picked the same apostles Jesus chose because he didn't choose the religious leaders or the political leaders of the day. He didn't even choose people who were supposed to be educated or wise. He chose common, everyday people. So we probably wouldn't have done that. But even if we got to this point and we're looking through the lens of human wisdom, trying to figure out what we would do as humans, we want to build a religious movement and we have 5,000 people who want to make us king by force. That's a pretty tempting offer, isn't it? If we were wanting to start a movement, this would be a promising beginning. And I don't know what exactly we'd do, but I can guarantee if we were using our human wisdom, we wouldn't do what Jesus did, and that is he withdrew. Not only that, but later on in the chapter, we see him encounter these same people. And rather than trying to rally the troops or to get them to remember that they had wanted to seize uh, the nation by force, they wanted to make him king, uh, he ends up rebuking them. He says in verse 26 of John chapter 6, Truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And Jesus tells them, you're following me, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. Not because you see who the signs are pointing to, my Father, but because you want that physical food that you ate. They were looking for physical bread rather than spiritual bread. And Jesus would spend the remainder of the chapter comparing himself to the spiritual bread from heaven and trying to let them know that in order for them to live, they are going to have to eat of of his body, being the bread from heaven. And we see their reaction towards the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? In verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Here you have a group of people who had wanted to make Jesus a powerful political figure, who had wanted to make him someone that could take the throne by force. They were thinking of that earthly kingdom while Jesus was thinking in spiritual terms. They'd seen that he could heal people who were sick. They'd seen that he could create food out of very little food. If he could feed the hungry and heal those who were sick, what chance did any army have against them? But Jesus wasn't thinking in physical terms. He was thinking in spiritual terms, and so he challenged them. And we realize that Jesus never values quantity of followers over the quality of faith. Just think about that for a second. He could have had the opportunity for many to follow him, but he wanted to make sure they understood the cost, the significance of following Jesus. Should we try to draw all the people that we can to Christ? Absolutely. But we can never do that at the cost of watering down what it means to be a Christian. We can never try to to sugarcoat what's going to happen when they begin to make that walk, when they begin to march under the Lord's banner. Jesus didn't do it. He was open and honest, and he was frank with the results of being a Christian. And we should do the same thing. And so as we look at the text in Luke chapter 9, we notice a few different things that following uh, and marching under the Lord's banner is going to lead us to. First of all, we see that if, if we're going to march under the Lord's banner, it will lead us beyond our comfort zones. Let's look at these first two verses we read, 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus and his followers walked to many different cities, and they were usually dependent on other people for places to stay and food to eat. And so we see a man coming to Jesus saying, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is making sure that this man isn't thinking in in earthly terms. He says, if you're thinking of of earthly blessings you're going to receive from following me, you should know I don't even have a place to lay my head. There weren't physical blessings that were going to come from following Jesus. In fact, later on in Jesus' ministry, when the Pharisees had seized him, when Judas had betrayed him and his disciples had deserted him, Jesus literally had nowhere to turn. And we wonder if the man truly understood what it meant to follow Jesus everywhere he went. Was he willing to follow him that far? The other disciples apparently weren't. And they deserted Jesus at the moment he needed them most. The man doesn't seem to understand that following Jesus will lead us beyond our comfort zones. The zones of, of physical comfort and also the boundaries of, of spiritual comfort. And following the banner of the Lord has always led men and women past their comfort zones. See, following the banner of the Lord led Abraham from his hometown, from the place that he knew, the family that he had grown up with, 
And it led him to leave with his wife to go to a place that God was going to appoint for him. He didn't know where it was, but he had faith that the Lord would be faithful to him. Moses followed the banner of the Lord all the way back to Egypt, the last place he wanted to go. He wasn't very welcome there. But as he went in, he followed the Lord's banner and did the Lord's will. It led him beyond a place he would have gone on his own. But God was able to do great things through him. Following the banner of the Lord led Gideon to a position of authority with a small group of soldiers. Gideon didn't feel like he was worthy to lead a group into battle, but he followed the Lord's banner into battle and he was victorious because the Lord was with him. We see this throughout the New Testament as well. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is written for those who were struggling, who had grown up in a Jewish tradition and then had become Christians. And the book of Hebrews is a reminder to Jews that you need to hold on to this new covenant. That this covenant is superior to all the previous arrangements that God had made with man. And you can imagine what a struggle that would have been if you had grown up as a Jew. First of all, there were physical comfort zones that you would have to go past in order to be a Christian. You know, Judaism was an accepted religion during the New Testament times, and Christianity was treated as more of a cult. And you can imagine what a Jew would have thought when he becomes a Christian and he sees all of the destruction that is taking place in Christian families around him. He sees men and women who were tortured and even killed for their belief in Christ. And it would have been so tempting to say, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not quite worth it. Maybe I should just step back into what I have. Imagine growing up with your parents being Jewish, their grandparents, everyone you've known lived in the Jewish faith. It would be so difficult to leave that life, those customs, those sacrifices that you'd really built your life around behind. And you can just imagine that when times began to get tough for those converts from Judaism, that they just wanted, maybe I could just reach back and take this one sacrifice. Maybe if I could just have this one custom, this one piece of familiarity. But Christ calls them to leave their comfort zones and to follow him to leave their sacrifices and to obey the one who was our once-for-all sacrifice, the one who made all previous sacrifices null and void. But see, that wasn't unique to the Jewish Christians. Those Christians who were Gentiles also faced that same struggle. We know that especially in places like the church at Corinth, there were those who were worshipers of pagan gods, people who worshipped idols and worshipped in temples, and they had to leave that life behind. They had to accept the same kind of physical danger, uh, stepping out of their physical comfort zones that the Jews did. They also had to step out of, of their spiritual comfort zones. And you can imagine someone who had grown up worshiping an idol or worshiping at a temple, walking past idols and walking past temples on his way to meet with uh, believers, on his way to worship with Christians. And you just have to think it was tempting just to say, maybe just this once. Just this once, I'll hold on to what I had in my past. Just once, I'll hold on to what's made me comfortable, what I've been used to. But see, the banner of the Lord leads us outside our comfort zones. It can lead us outside physical comfort zones. It can lead us to times where we might not have a, a place to lay our head. But it can also lead us out of spiritual comfort zones. It can lead us to abandon beliefs we may have held on to very dearly and cling to Christ. But in the end, isn't that what a, a banner does? Isn't that the purpose of holding a banner when you're an army? You're marching into enemy territory and you hold the flag or the banner so that they can see who's coming. The purpose of a banner is to lead the troops into hostile territory across enemy lines. And so as we face 2004 and we decide to march 
in the footsteps of Christ and the banner of the Lord, we may stretch beyond our comfort zones. I don't know what your specific comfort zones are. I know what mine are. But I think that I can safely say all of us, if we follow Christ long enough, will have to step beyond those comfort zones. And we'll need to be prepared. We see that the banner of the Lord leads us beyond our comfort zones. It also compels us to order our priorities. Listen to the second interaction here in Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse 59, uh, Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to them, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now this statement at first glance seems very harsh. In fact, if we're not careful, we could leave this text and have an idea in our mind that God will not allow us to to bury those who are close to us or care for our family. But if we look closer, I think we see the principle that lies under this statement. Think about it for a second. If this man's father had died, do you think he would be there talking to Jesus? He would probably be taking care of that burial. Remember, when Lazarus died, Jesus arrived only a few days later, but Lazarus was already buried. A burial wasn't something that was long and drawn out. It was something that took place immediately after death. So when we look at this instance, we see a man who is saying maybe his father was sick. We don't know. His father could have been old. Or maybe he was just saying, let me take care of my father until he passes on. And then I'll bury him, and then I'll follow him. We don't know the exact specifics of this man's situation. We do know this. If we were to follow in the banner of the Lord, we were going to have to reorder our priorities. And that means our commitments to our Lord, our commitment to Christ, is going to take the top level on our list of priorities. It's going to have that primary spot, that number one spot. Following Christ will be above all else, and everything else we do will need to glorify Him. You remember the Israelites all throughout history. Whenever they would veer away, when they would lose sight of their priorities, and they would would veer away into uh, pagan practices, they would get so caught up with men and women of other countries, they'd intermarry, and they'd lose their faith. And you remember, it wasn't until tragedy shocked them back into reality, or when disaster would strike, They would reorder their priorities. And all of a sudden, when they placed God as their top priority, that's when they began to flourish again. That's illustrated also in the New Testament. Last week, we talked about a man who had been born blind. Do you remember the Pharisees' reaction to that man when he was healed? Their reaction wasn't joy that a man who had been blind all his life could see. Uh, Their reaction wasn't to see how Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. Their reaction was, this man did it on a Sabbath. And that's the way that we can get to Jesus. You see, their top priority wasn't looking for the Messiah. It was making sure that Jesus didn't take their place as the most respected teachers. It was making sure that they could have a witness that could testify that their interpretation of the Sabbath had been violated, and therefore they could implicate Jesus. Priorities were messed up. And as we reorder our priorities, we see it's a challenge to place God at the top of the list. When I look at my calendar and see where I'm spending my time, what I'm doing during the day, and ask myself, where are my priorities? It's a challenge. When I look at my budget for the month and see where I'm spending my money and ask myself, where are my priorities? It's a challenge. And so as we enter into 2004, we realize that we need to order our priorities in such a way that God is at the top of the list. It may be a challenge. I don't know your specific list of priorities. I know mine. And I know that if we're going to march in Christ's footsteps, he's going to have to be at the top of that list. 
But after all, isn't a banner a top priority when you're going into battle? A flag that a group is waving when they go in to fight, they don't want that flag to hit the ground. In fact, if that flag falls, someone will grab it before it can even touch the ground. Above all else, they want that flag raised. It's a top priority because it symbolizes what they're fighting for. The banner of the Lord symbolizes our fight. And serving the Lord should be our top priority. And so we see that it compels us to reorder our priorities. But we also see that following in the banner of spiritual focus. Let's look at these last couple of verses. Permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his head to the, hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We're going to have to of all else on the Lord. It's difficult to plow in a straight line when you're looking No, that is because it's written here. Some of you have grown up with that kind of knowledge. You know what it means to plow in a straight line. I don't. I do know, however, like many of us, when we learn to ride a bicycle, we face that same principle. Now, my parents loved to tell the story of teaching me to ride a bicycle because I was so preoccupied on what was on either side of me that I would get, I would get caught up and I would start falling this way. And so my parents, of course, told me, well, turn, turn the wheel, turn this way. And so I'd turn this way and I'd start falling the other way. So I'd turn the wheel and so I'd turn that way. And then I figured like I, I had it down. I figured I understood what was going on. And it wasn't quite the triumphant moment that I think Dad pictured when he let go of the seat and I began to ride like this and this and this all the way down the sidewalk. It's when he realized I couldn't ride in a straight line. And so every time I would come up against a bush or, or a car that was beside me, I'd look at it, and when I'd look at it, I'd steer towards it. So of course I'd run into it and fall down. And that went on for quite a while, longer than uh, I'll, I'll admit here. But uh, it went on for quite a long time. And finally, we got to the point where uh, Dad told me, you can't look at what's on either side of you. You have to look on what's ahead. You have to fix your eyes on that point in the distance. And then you can ride in that straight line. It's a lesson we've probably all learned growing up, and it's a good thing that we can learn it on bicycles uh, before we start driving, or else it would get a little more serious. But you know that when you are trying to make it to a certain specific location, you've got to focus. Paul would put it this way in the third chapter of Philippians. He would say, beginning in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, uh, meaning the perfection of heaven, but one thing I know, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Peter, when he stepped out of the boat as Jesus was walking on the water and he tried to walk to Jesus, when was the moment that he fell? Lost his footing and he began to sink. In the end, isn't a banner designed to draw focus, to draw attention? In fact, I think there's something that's psychologically appealing when you go into battle about having a flag or a banner, a visible sign of the cause you're fighting for. And that's why there's such a high priority on it. 
is because it's encouraging to the men's morale if they're fighting to see a flag waving in the air, to see a banner, to know their cause. The same is true for us. So if we're following the banner of the Lord, if we're marching in Christ's footsteps, we're first of all going to have to realize it may lead us beyond our comfort zones. It also will compel us to order our priorities. And it will require us to maintain spiritual focus. It's difficult to maintain focus in the culture we live in. So much is valued that God calls us not to value. And so much that God calls us to value, like morality and character and integrity, is sort of left by the wayside, by the pop culture. But we need to realize that if we maintain that spiritual focus, we can be a better servant and we can make sure we're marching in Christ's footsteps. As we think about what it means to follow the banner of the Lord in this next year, it may mean different things for different individuals here, depending on your place in life. It may be that you haven't begun that march yet. Maybe you're not a part of that team that's marching in. And if, if you're not, you may wonder, as we've talked about all the negative things that will take place if, if you follow Christ, all those consequences, you may wonder why people choose to do it. Jesus was very upfront with his disciples about what it meant to follow him, yet people continually followed him. Peter and Paul would write to those who were suffering and were very upfront about the physical pain they might suffer, but people continued to follow Christ. Well, the reason is, all those negatives don't add up to the one overwhelming positive aspect following Christ. That is a place that we can't comprehend designed by a God who loves us more than we can imagine and it's waiting for those of us who submit ourselves to his will, who march in his army under his banner. We can march all the way through our life here on earth and into the promised land, into eternity in heaven with the one who created us. If you want to begin that march tonight, this would be a great time. Or it could be that you're already in that march and you realize that you might have veered away from the footsteps of Christ. And maybe your face hasn't reflected the image of Christ in the way that you know that it should. If you've ever been to San Antonio before, you've probably seen the scene of another military conflict. It's a very historical site, the Alamo. And if you've ever visited there, you know there are several different historic artifacts you can look at and there are different paintings that line the walls of the Alamo, but there's one painting in particular uh, that has an inscription I think is just very intriguing. When you look at this painting, it stands out a little bit from the rest, and it's of a man named James Butler Bonham, and the inscription reads this way, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. We don't necessarily have a picture, a physical picture of God that we can place out in the foyer or a portrait that we can show up here on the screen. But you know, people we come in contact with every day are getting some kind of picture of the God we serve. They're getting it from us. Wouldn't it be great if people could say to each other, you know, we can't physically see God, but I'll tell you the next best thing there's someone I work with that bears a striking resemblance to him. Look at the kindness in her actions. There's someone I go to school with that really reminds me of God. Look at the way he treats other people. If we're constantly focusing and following in Christ's steps, 
marching under that banner. And we're focused so much on Christ's example that we start to reflect uh, his image to other people around us. We can become a picture of Christ to those we see. And we can truly show people the appearance of a man who died for freedom. He died for your freedom and he died for my freedom. All we have to do is fight on his side. The initiation is easy. Once we have that faith in him, once we decide to turn our lives around a complete 180 from the life we live and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and put him on in baptism, we begin fighting in an army and we already know what the outcome is going to be. If you want to begin fighting in that army or maybe if you just want to reflect the image of the God you serve better, if there's any way we can help you, please come up to the front as we stand and sing together.